Hello, welcome back to Christian's Colloquy. I'm Christian, and I'm so glad that you could join me again this week. After a long winter Christmas break where we had a few special episodes and then an interview, we are finally back on track with the Congregationalism series. I know I introduced that a few weeks ago, but here we are. I am committed to getting through this. I want to get through this. I know a lot of you are interested in it, so here we are. Last time, if you've seen it, uh, you'll remember. If you haven't, I highly recommend you check it out. We introduced Congregationalism just by talking about briefly what it is and by presenting one of the main figures promoting, defending Congregationalism back in the 17th century, and that was John Cotton. John Cotton being a truly patriarch figure of New England Puritanism. That was an interesting episode, I believe anyway, where we got a look at his life, some of the historic events shaping his outlook and his journey and his movement. And today we are beginning, are getting into the series again by zooming into his major work promoting congregationalism, and that is the Keys of the Kingdom. It has a longer name, a bit more archaic. I'll leave you to look it up. I encourage you to check out his work for yourself. I'll leave a link to it, but we're going to be calling it the Keys of the Kingdom. Before diving into the Keys of the Kingdom, talking about Cotton's work on congregationalism, I want to briefly share with you a few things up front. So if you're interested in hearing these things, just leave it alone, keep listening. But if you want to just dive into the meat, I will leave a little timestamp in the description where you could just skip ahead and get right into my discussion of the book. But before getting there, I wanted to mention just two, three things. First of all, as you can see from the title, this is part one. As I was going through the book again, I read it a couple years back, but I'm going through it again now. I got a fresh look at how depending on your perspective, I guess, how rich this book is or just how dense this book is. There is so much material. It's relatively short, only 80 pages on the PDF version. But let me tell you, this is some heavy-duty material. This is some pretty deep stuff. So first of all, that explains why we're breaking this up into two parts. Part one, this episode, looking at chapters one through five, and then we will come back next time and talk about the remaining chapters, heavy-duty stuff. And that really, just as a side point, explains why this work, The Keys of the Kingdom, was just so powerful in its day. This is the book by John Cotton that convinced many Puritan elites, think about John Owen, just that prince of the Puritans, that leading mind. This is what was convincing Puritans like Owen to embrace Congregationalism. Wonder why Congregationalism became such a force where we speak of it as one of the three major polities in church history today? Well, that's because this work just truly hit home with many of the brightest English-speaking Protestants. It convinced them away from Episcopal polity, from Presbyterian polity. This is what brought so many luminaries into Congregational polity, this work. And it's short, but it is a lot of information. So, two parts, heavy hitter work. Second thing I just want to briefly mention is my direction for this little episode's this uh, look at the keys of the kingdom. Again, dense work. I could really be super all over it. We could look at it analytically. We could look at it cr uh, critically. But for this series, I just want to be descriptive, briefly descriptive. I don't let me tell you, I could dive in, we could write essays on this, books on this 
book, but I want to just give an overview of some of the key points. We'll look at each of the chapters and really highlight some of the features as Cotton presents them. And why I'm going to be taking it this way is I know that in my audience, I probably have two people who are listening or watching to these episodes on Congregationalism. First, I want to speak to the people who are really theologically interested in Congregationalism, whether you're an outsider looking in at Congregationalism, wondering what's going on, or a Congregationalist trying to defend your position or really understand it. If you have that intense theological interest, that academic interest, I hope that these episodes will get you hopefully interested in reading the whole of this work, help you understand why it was such an influential work, and maybe as you're conducting your study, these brief descriptions of the keys of the kingdom will help you maybe think about other categories you need to introduce into your study, questions you should be asking when thinking about polity, or just help you understand which texts of scripture, outside of the main ones you're probably already engaging with, must be considered when discussing polity. I'm hoping that's what this description style will bring to you. But I also know in my audience there are a lot of people who might not have the intense theological or deep academic interest in congregationalism, but maybe this will help you just learn a little bit more about the polity of your church or maybe your friend's church. Why do Congregationalists, Baptists, or Congregationalists themselves, or Pentecostal, Lutheran, whoever the Congregational is in question, why do they practice this polity? Why are they doing this instead of Episcopal polity? Why are they doing this instead of Presbyterian polity? Those ones which are often described, I have a bit of disagreement there, as these more historic or perhaps more uh, unifying polities. Why do Congregational congregationalists do this. Hopefully this description will give you those biblical and theological reasons that historic congregationalists were working with, why they felt convicted that they should take this path. And I think that as you're thinking about your situation, maybe you've been in a congregationalist church and wondered, why do we do these things? Why am I sticking up my hand in voting? Or why did we have this polity if it left open certain problems? Hopefully this will just introduce you why there are serious theological and biblical reasons for doing things the congregationalist way. Just to give you that idea, maybe you're in your church wondering what's going on. Well, here are some of the reasons why we speak the way we do, we act the way we do in our congregationalist churches, whatever denomination they are. So that's why we're looking at the keys of the kingdom. That's why I'm splitting up into two parts. And that's why I'll be taking this sort of overview descriptive approach to the book. So with all that said, let's dive in now with the keys of the kingdom. Diving into the keys of the kingdom, I think we first need to address the name. Why would a book on congregationalism be called the keys of the kingdom? Well, the simple answer is, and the way Cotton really opens up his book, is by introducing a verse which is critical to the conversation, and one I think that is often neglected. Let me read out the verse that is starting Cotton's discussion of church governance and polity. This is Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is one of those verses that if you spend a lot of time online, it's often in the discussion of the role of Peter and his office and the apostles. But Cotton is bringing it out to discuss how this really introduces the conversation of church governance as a whole. You have this kingdom of heaven, you have these keys, you have this loosing and binding, and we might be thinking right now, what is going on? But as we dive in, Cotton will tell us 
what's going on here and why, what questions we're bringing to this task in, uh, text and how they relate to polity. So now looking at chapter one. Chapter one is entitled, What the Keys of the Kingdom of Heaven Be and What Their Power. So I should just mention here as I read out that chapter heading, for most of these uh, quotes that I'm getting from Cotton, I am just taking it directly from his more archaic language that he was writing in. It might sound a bit unnatural if you're reading on YouTube the, the quotes, you might see the spelling is a bit different or weird. It's not me misspelling, I'm copying and pasting, I'm using his language, his words wherever I can, but some places I will be writing my own little notes or saying my own little words, or I will be quoting or pasting from the ESV if it's a Bible tra uh, a Bible translation I'm providing and not quoting from him. So that just explains a bit of the archaic language and sentence structure here. So back to chapter one. What the kingdom uh, keys of the kingdom of heaven be and what their power. So in this chapter, uh, Cotton begins by introducing five questions that he's bringing to this text of Matthew 16, 19. What is the kingdom of heaven? What are the keys of this kingdom? What are the acts of these keys, e.g. that loosing and binding mentioned? What, are, what is the object of these acts? So we have these acts of the keys. What are these keys and these acts being done upon? And then who is the recipient of this power? Who is wielding the keys and doing these acts? These are the first five questions Cotton brings. Then to briefly summarize his answer so we get an idea, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's the kingdom of grace, which is the church. So when we're talking about the keys of the kingdom, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven being the church. So you already get an idea we're talking about something to do with the church here. And what are the keys of this kingdom? Well, they are the ordinances which Christ instituted. Think about the preaching of the word, the administering of the seals, which by seals, Cotton is referring to the sacraments. So we're talking about the church and we're talking about those important acts of life in the church. There are so many, but we often think of preaching and the sacraments or the ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper. So what are the acts of the keys? That third question, the loosening and the binding. And I believe we'll tack on here. What are the objects of these acts? Well, this is where cotton is getting into opening and shutting, retaining and remitting. Those kind of dichotomies where we're talking about sins, sinners and sins, conscience, and just the idea of church censure, church discipline. So that's where we get into these questions of church governance as they relate to church life. Who is doing what in the church? How it relates to the identity of the church. So we see here, we're really talking about church structure, order, its authority, its discipline, and everything going on in there. So really, we're talking about church governance. And who is the recipient of this power? So we're talking about the church and life in the church. Well, who has these keys of the church who wields these keys which are so powerful as we're beginning to get this idea this is where cotton first introduces how we are to think of polity and church governance and let me read out cotton's own words in response to this fifth question who is the recipient of this power of these keys who can wield them well turning back to matthew 16 19 he uh, totally is upfront and saying, in the context here, we're talking about Peter, the Apostle Peter. But how is Peter to be conceived of in this text where keys and power are being handed over about the church? Well, here's what Cotton says. How 
Peter is to be considered in receiving the power of the keys, whether as an apostle or as an elder. For an elder also he was. Look at 1 Peter 5.1. Or as a believer professing his faith before the Lord Jesus and his fellow brethren. So see, here we have three ways in which we can consider Peter that relate to church structure and governance. Who has the keys of the church? Who has power in the church? Well, we're talking about Peter, but how are we talking about Peter? Is it in his unique role as apostle that he has keys of the church, that he has power in the church? Are we talking about his role as an elder in the church? Is it elders who possess the keys of the church, the power of the church? Or is it Peter as a believer, just as a normal believer professing his faith in Christ? Does he have the keys of the church? So see, we he, uh, here, if you think about those definitions again, we introduced in the first episode about different polities and different church governances, depending how you view Peter here, whether he's receiving the keys as an apostle, as an elder, or just as one of the brethren, a believer, that has great implications about our structures today. How is Peter receiving this authority? And Cotton's answer, despite being a Congregationalist, might be interesting. He doesn't just jump to what we might expect and saying, oh, the believer, the congregation. Here's what Cotton says in response. First, that Christ gave the power of retaining or remitting sins, that is, the power of binding and loosing, the whole power of the keys, to all the apostles as well as to Peter. Look at John 20. Secondly, it appeareth also that the apostles commended the rule and government of every particular church to the elders, the presbytery, the group of elders leading uh, a church. And to that, he says, look to Hebrews 13 and 1 Timothy 5. And therefore, Christ also gave the power of the keys to them also. Thirdly, it appeareth farther that Christ gave the power of the keys to the body likewise of the church, even to the fraternity with the presbytery. For the Lord Jesus communicateth the power of binding and loosing to the apostles or the elders together with the whole church, when they are met in his name and agree together in the censure of an offender. Look at Matthew 18 and that famous passage about church discipline. So that was a lot from John Cotton, but what is he saying? Well, when we're talking about the keys of the church, that sign of authority, that basis for church government, when asked, was it given to Peter as an apostle or as a presbyter, an elder, or as a member and just regular believer of the church? The answer to that is yes. He's given it to him in all those ways. The keys of the kingdom of the church are given to his special role as apostle, to his role as elder, and to his role as regular old believer. And that is to say, and I think here we're beginning to see the roots of congregationalism, everyone, everyone in the church, Peter as representative of all these different roles, receives the keys. So that we understand that the keys of the kingdom are given to the church, elders, members, everything in between as a whole. Who has the keys of the church? the church as a whole. That is an interesting point, a critical point, and that's the first chapter. I encourage you, there's a lot more Cotton says. That's going to be, I'm going to say that every single time, every single chapter. Check it out, but that's where he starts. We have this kingdom of heaven, the church, and keys given to it 
as a whole. Peter in that passage being representative of the apostles, of all the elders, and of all believers. All right, that's chapter one. Now moving into chapter two. Chapter two of the distribution of the keys and their power or the several sorts thereof. Here is pretty interesting. You might have heard of the term, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You probably read this in this passage, but Cotton goes on to describe different keys within that role. As you can see on your screen, if you're watching on YouTube, I'll read them out now. Cotton speaks of the key of knowledge, the key of power, and even within that key of power, there's the key of order and the key of jurisdiction. And throughout the book, he'll bring up all sorts of different types of keys, the key of authority, the key of liberty, the key of this and that and interchange used or sometimes names are replaced but the whole point is when we're speaking about the keys given to the church given to Peter initially as representative of all these different aspects of the church there are different authorities associated with each of these keys and when I first read Cotton on this I'm going to admit I thought man what is he talking about different keys I, I've never heard of these different keys of knowledge and of power and what is going on here it sounds like some made-up medieval stuff where they have the different hierarchies of angels and it's cool but what's the basis but I, I, I'll have to admit here Cotton really had to do some teaching with me where he then moves on to present where these different keys come from in scripture why are we speaking of different keys of power given to the church well let me just introduce a little bit of that to you now. I won't go into all of them. You'll have to read the book yourself. But here's an idea of why we're speaking of different keys given to the church. While thinking about this key of knowledge, Cotton goes to Luke 11:52, where it says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Here we see that even scripture speaks of a key of knowledge, and it's something that relates to hindering. It's something that relates to teaching. It's something that relates to acceptance, and that's the basis. I won't get into all the precise definitions, but when Cotton is speaking of different keys, he's working with scriptural categories and even scriptural language. Here's another example. The key of order. What is the key of order? Well, he turns to 2 Thessalonians 3.6, where it says, and this is, of course, the Apostle Paul writing this. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Here there's an instruction of power and authority communicated, this key of order to not associate with those who are being disorderly. Clearly, there's a separation on the basis of order, and that is why Cotton then moves to speak about this key of order in the structure, life, and workings of the church. And that's true for all the different keys. There are many other keys. There's many other definitions, many other texts. But when he is speaking about the keys that are relating to church governance and church life, there are many different ones, and they're all working with different principles or even direct language that speak to different issues in the church. And that is an interesting chapter, but I'll leave it there. Let's move on to chapter 3 now. Of the subject of the power of the keys, to whom they are committed, and first of the key of knowledge and order. So here Cotton is diving into the different keys. Who are they given to within the church? We mentioned how Peter was representative of different groups within the church. Well, who actually holds the different keys that relate to different aspects of church life and governance? He says this first of the key of knowledge, quoting Cotton, the key of knowledge 
or which is all one, the key of faith, again, a different term, belongeth to all the faithful, whether joined to any particular church or no. Moving on a bit, it is true every faithful soul that has received a key of knowledge is bound to watch over his neighbor's soul and his own and to admonish him of sin unless he be a scorner. So the key of knowledge, and again, I'll leave you to look it up, what this key of knowledge entails. It gets into the word and teaching and preaching and just knowing God. And as you see here, the key of faith, it's about faith. That's given to everyone who is a believer. And that comes with the expectation that believers, according to the word of God, all those who claim to have faith will encourage and rebuke one another, that will build one another up. That authority, that key has been given to everyone in the church, everyone in the invisible church, that is to say. Whether you're part of a local church or whether you're just a believer still looking for a local church, we have a responsibility to one another as we have all been given the key of knowledge or the key of faith. Moving on now to the key of order. The key of order, speaking as we do of church order, as Paul doth in Colossians 2.5, belongeth to all such who are in church order, whether elders or brethren. For though elders be in a superior order by reason of their office, yet the brethren, over whom the elders are made overseers and rulers, they stand also in order, even in orderly subjection, according to the order of the gospel. So the distinction here, while the key of faith is given to all believers, the key of order is given to people actually in local churches, actually committed to church order and church life. They have a particular commitment to living and working within the structure, the hierarchies, and the general term order of the church. So we see here there are different keys and they're given to believers, different groups, depending on different situations, and they refer to different issues. While one is about faith and our demand, our mandate to build each other up and encourage each other, another one is given to people actually in churches to participate in the church order, the church structure, and the local church life. So those are the first two keys. Next chapter, chapter four, Cotton then moves on to the following keys. And the chapter heading here is of the subject to whom the key of church privilege, power, or liberty is given. Again, we could see here different names uh, for the same thing, but this is about actual power in the church, actual privilege in the church, actual liberty in the church. While we moved on from just participating in church order, who actually has power in this church order? Who has received the key to be able to act in a way in church order? Cotton's answer, this key, the key of privilege, power, or liberty, is given to the brethren of the church. For so saith the apostle in Galatians 5.13. Quoting Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we have been given this key of liberty, and it's to serve one another. And this is given to everyone in the church. And again, as we're about to see with the next sort of discussion of this key of liberty or power, this is really where you see congregationalism shining through. And again, it's an argument building upon each other. Again, very complex, very deep. But here is where we begin to see congregationalism as it is both back then and today. The claim is, based on all these passages building up together, that everyone in the church, 
Again, thinking back to Peter as representative also of all believers. Everyone has the key of power and or liberty. But what does that actually mean? That we have this key, that everyone in the local church has this key. Whoever's a member of the local church committed to the church order, a part of it has the key of power. Well, here's what Cotton says. The liberties of the brethren or of the church consisting of them are many and great. And here is a first and great example. The church of brethren hath the power, privileges, and liberty to choose their officers. And to build on this, to demonstrate this, why, how is he claiming this? Cotton goes to scripture, Acts 14.23. They ordained them elders, chosen by lifting up of hands. It's here where I take a brief aside to mention, if you look up Acts 14.23, in your modern translation today, you'll see something very different. It speaks about the apostles appointing the elders, but this gets into a whole big discussion about the Greek. I had a paper on ordination in seminary where I really dug into this, but the Greek term there, where it's typically translated as appointing, many of the old uh, translators, you can look at John Owen, Theodore Beza, and many before and after them, understood that Greek word there to be talking about the lifting up of hands and that mean the voting of the congregation something you're now probably familiar with again that gets into greek i won't dive into that i will lose so many people i'll lose myself but he points to that passage where it speaks of people lifting up their hands the church raising their hands to appoint elders he also then supports this by the clearer passage. The same power is clearly expressed in the choice of deacons in Acts 6, 3-6. to There, you could go even in your modern translations and see that the apostles called on the churches to elect members of their congregation, of their church, to serve in the office of deacon. So, let's just pause here. What is Cotton talking about? Building up through all these chapters before. There are keys in the church. These are keys given to the church. And as we see with Peter, they are given to the church as a whole, whether it's elders, whether it's him uniquely as apostle, or whether it's Peter as representative of all believers. And what are these keys given? Well, you have some keys given to believers in general, the key of faith. Some keys are given to those part of local churches in themselves. And then once you're a part of that local church in of itself, you're part of the church order, you then have this key of liberty, which gives you the right, the responsibility to, first of all, raise up to elect your own elders and deacons, the officers of the church. To build on from there, we need to talk about the other keys. What else is going on? So in chapter five, uh, he goes on to say of the subject to whom the key of authority is committed. So we talked about the key of liberty. Now we need to talk about this other key, this key of authority. While we have liberties given to everyone in the church, and that's electing up officers, there's more going on as we know in church life. And here's where Cotton says, the key of authority or rule is committed to the elders of the church, and so that the act of rule is made the proper act of their office, the elders that rule well. He's looking at 1 Timothy 5.17, Hebrews 13.7-17. So what's going on here? While everyone in the church order has the liberty to raise up officers and do some other things. As uh, he mentions in the book, he talks about discipline. He talks about uh, removing and adding members and that sort of thing. There are some roles specific to the officers of the church. 
they have specific obligations as wielders of the keys. Again, Peter was representative of believers in receiving the keys, but also of elders and his unique role as apostle. So what is the key of authority? What is that talking about? Well, elders of specific local churches have the special authority to preach, preach the word, and that's rebuke and exhort with all authority. Again, that is something, I'm making this clear again, that we're talking here about John Cotton, his very specific form of Puritan congregationalism. I'll get into my own Baptist takes in the future, but what Cotton is saying here is that one of the keys, authority, is given to elders alone, officers alone, and elders, as wielders of this key of authority, are given the responsibility to preach. He looks at Titus 2.15, rebuke and exhort with all authority. Again, authority. That that's given to the elders. That's their responsibility. Another one, and interestingly here, I don't know if I agree with Cotton here. I'll get into that again in a future episode. He says, uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, that famous Great Commission, Commission passage, make disciples and baptize them. He says that is sign that elders are given the authority, the key of authority to administer the sacraments. So while everyone is all the members of the church have a certain key, and that's to elect and raise up officers and um, a few other things. Elders specifically have the key of authority to preach the word and to administer the sacraments, administer the Lord's Supper and baptism. That is their key in the local church. But he goes on, the key of authority has other implications. A second act of the authority, quoting Cotton here, common to the elders, is they have the power as any weighty occasion shall require to call the church together. And here, Cotton references how the apostles called the church together to elect their deacons, and how the priest in the Old Testament would call the assembly together to do whatever they were doing in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Here, Cotton is saying that the church elders have the authority to bring the church together for worship or for any other activities they deem right. That is specifically the authority of the elders. Not everyone in the congregation has this key of authority to assemble the church. Elders have that. And that, of course, is an interesting discussion again with uh, COVID-19 now, where we're seeing churches having to make decisions about assembling and about not assembling. And that's a very practical application where in most congregational churches, that hasn't been a vote. That has been the elders of the church wielding a key of authority to make this decision on behalf of their congregation. Just to give you some practical application, some of the distinctions here. Elders, Cotton saying, have the authority to assemble the church and by, I believe, necessary con uh, consequence to choose not to assemble the church. Elders have that authority, not the church as a whole. Moving on from there, there are other things that this key of authority given specifically to the elders or pastors of the church that they have. So just to list some out, they have the authority to examine members to be received into the church. And again, we might think of how even in our congregationalist churches today, people will vote on members. But here he's saying that the elders have the authority to examine people before this vote. That might be familiar in your church context where people will vote, but the elders present the potential members to be voted on. Another thing, the elders have the responsibility to ordain the officers selected by the church. While the key of liberty has the entire church uh, electing elders, 
it's the responsibility of the established elders to actually ordain the elders, the officers that the church has elected. Again, we see how the church is all fitting together in the congregational setting, but the church as a whole has different responsibilities from the elders. The church as a whole elects, while the elders then ordain those who have been elected to office. Moving on from there, the church, uh, the elders have this key of authority, which also allows them to censure for uh, offenses, to decide on the censure. So while the key of power, the whole church might choose to discipline a person, it is the key of authority wielded specifically by the elders who choose what the discipline should be. Again, we're seeing here the, how these things work together. The church disciplines, the elders specifically choose how to discipline. Finally, the key of the authority allows the elders to dismiss the church with the blessing of the Lord. Like they have the duty, the power, the authority, the key there to assemble the church, they alone, according to Cotton, have the key which allows them to dismiss the church and bless them in the name of the Lord, the benediction. If you're at many churches, you will see that where your pastor, the preaching pastor, will dismiss you and leave you with a blessing as you go out in the name of the Lord. That, Cotton is saying, is the work, the act of the key of authority. So that's how I will leave it here today. We've gone through the first five chapters. Uh, some of you might be thinking, man, this is a lot, this is crazy. But I hope that it's starting to make sense, that you begin to see why Cotton would move in this direction when de describing and promoting congregational authority. And maybe, be uh, hopefully you're beginning to see why people found this convincing. He is working with a theme in scripture, these keys of the kingdom, which he says is the church, and how there are different keys, which he's building on different passages of scripture, and how these different keys, again, according to scripture, are given to the church of the whole, and now given specifically to elders, and how these things work together. It's interesting to note here that there hasn't been anything mentioned beyond the local church. Right now, we just have the actual church body and they have the key of liberty to elect elders and we have the key of authority given to the elders and that's where they can ordain elders and they can choose how to censure they can assemble and all sorts of other things so lots of different keys lots of different roles but working within the structure of the church next time when we come back we will look at the remaining chapters, and that's where Cotton gets into this concept of synods, what's going on there. Very interesting stuff, very confusing stuff, I'll admit, but I will try to get that outline again, keep it simple, keep it descriptive, and again, if you're interested, check it out for yourself. This is one of those books, it's short 80 pages, but man, you go over this with a fine-tooth comb, you're going to be getting deep into scripture, deep into theology, and deep into the life and governance of the local church. Anyway, I hope that you stuck around to the end. I hope you will check out John Cotton's work. And I hope, most importantly, that you will join me again here on Christian's Colloquy as we continue through this series of congregationalism and next time close up on The Keys of the Kingdom by John Cotton. That's it for now. Take care.